All right, we'll take your copy of God's Word and open up to the second book in your Bible, the book of Exodus in chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning. While you're turning there, I want to take a moment and just express uh, my appreciation for all of you who have been involved with Moberly's rummage sale. Uh, That has been a months-long process, and then over the last several weeks, that's intensified. And then this past week, it's been more intense than any of the other prior weeks, and especially this weekend. If you're a guest with us today, and maybe you're saying, why why is the church having a rummage sale? Every dollar that is raised through our annual rummage sale uh, goes to benefit our benevolence fund. And that goes to help every nickel that's, that's raised is given away to help uh, families and individuals here in East Texas who need help. And uh, you saw a testimony last uh, Sunday of a life that was changed as a result of that. And week in and week out, I mean, I'm probably 98% of the, the weeks when we have a, uh, an opportunity for benevolence, people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is truly a life-changing ministry. And uh, this last week was just awesome. We saw well over 100 Moberly members who uh, just sacrificed their time, hundreds and hundreds of hours, and uh, served at the rummage sale. And uh, those of you who went to that, you just saw it was overwhelming, the amount of things that you all donated and then uh, that were uh, sold. And and, uh, I want to tell you that uh, that rummage sale raised over $43,000 this weekend. And uh, so we're really thankful for that. And uh, over the 11 years that uh, the rummage sale has been going on, that now brings uh, over $270,000 that has been raised and given away to benefit uh, those in need in our community. So we're so deeply thankful uh, for all the Lord has done and all the Lord has done uh, through you. Now, I should have uh, bought a weed eater at the rummage sale. I made a mistake. We, we actually bought a weed eater, a brand new weed eater, a few weeks ago at uh, at Walmart, and it was enticing uh, because it advertised itself as uh, one of those weed eaters where you could uh, fast feed the weed eater line. Now, that's the worst part of weed eating is uh, having to change out the, the weed eater uh, wire. Uh, I, we've had a weed eater that's probably about 130 years old that we've been using for all this time. And it just takes forever, you know, to get the weed eater head off and redo the line and all, all that kind of thing. So this was very appealing to uh, have a fast feed, you just take the weed, it, it, it should have been simple to figure out, right? I mean, let me just tell you, it is simple. It's so simple, a child can figure it out. You're just supposed to put the weed eater line right into the, 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 the spool right there. I couldn't figure it out. And so, but I thought, I'm not going to admit that I can't figure it out. I'm going to fix it. It's obviously defective right out of the box. And so... <laughs> I'm going to fix this thing. And so um, I unscrewed the weed eater head. And the moment I took that head off, uh, four or five springs just did boing. And all of a sudden, all of these metal parts just kind of fell all around me. Meanwhile, my son Austin is over there in the corner of the garage reading the instruction manual. And about 30 seconds after the springs do boing and move all around me, he says, oh, all you have to do is just stick the weed eater line in. It's like, great, if I had just read the instructions, right? Instead, I spent an hour trying to put this thing back together that I could have just figured out very simply if I just started with reading the instruction manual. Now, when you come to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, I want you to think about the Ten Commandments that way. These are God's instructions for life, for how life works best. And I want you to think about the Ten Commandments exactly that way. This is how life works best if we'll only hear and heed the Word of God. It's common to think when we read the Ten Commandments, we think about God's law. 
It's common to think about the word law as something very daunting, very uh, almost a punitive or restrictive. Uh, when I think of the word law, a couple of the things that come to my mind, law enforcement or court of law. And sometimes we think about God's law this way. We think that God is like a cosmic police officer who's waiting for us to break his law so he can bring the hammer down. But actually, the word law in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word Torah, and it just simply means this. It means instruction, instruction, guidance. And that's how we ought to think about God's word and God's law. This is, this is less like a police officer in the sky who's waiting for us to break the law so he can enforce the law and punish us. This is more like a parent who is giving instruction or, or guidance to a child because the parent wants the child to live a life that flourishes, that does well. And this is God's heart for us in His Word. He gives us His Word, listen, not to kill our, freed, uh, kill, kill our fun, but to create our freedom. We think sometimes about God's Word, God's just a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want me to have any fun. But His Word, His law is not meant to kill our fun, it's meant to create an environment in which we can have freedom and we can flourish in our, in our lives. And so I want you to picture here as we read the Ten Commandments, picture God who often calls Israel my son. Picture here a loving father with his children giving guidance and instruction for life so that they can live life the way that God intended it to be lived. Now, I told you that the Ten Commandments... Last week, I told you that it serves three functions. And so I just want to review that really quickly before we dive into commandment number two this morning. No, number one, the Ten Commandments serve to, uh, to be a picture of God's design. Everybody remember that from last week? God's design. In other words, when you read the Ten Commandments, you see a picture both of what God is like, but also how He has designed our lives to work best. Second of all, the, the Ten Commandments is a sign that points us forward to our need for Christ because the moment that you see God's design, you realize we don't live it out very well, do we? We disobey, we rebel, we do our own thing. Uh, kind of like me with the weed eater, we just think that we can sort of figure this thing out on our own and then all of a sudden our life does boing and we're saying, where are all the pieces? And as soon as you realize that that's how you do life, you realize that the Ten Commandments actually serve as a signpost pointing forward to our need for someone to deliver us from our brokenness, but also God's provision of the one who would deliver us. And the way he provides our deliverance is by sending his very own son who perfectly kept the law, never disobeyed any of them, and yet died on the cross to pay the penalty for our lawlessness, rose from the dead so that he could give us new life. And we're now made new when we come to faith in Jesus. We are delivered from our lawlessness, but not by our work, but by His work on the cross and in the resurrection for us. Now, once you come to find new life in Christ, right? The law serves as a sign pointing you to your need for Christ, God's provision of His Son for you. Once you come to know Jesus in that kind of way, now you read the Ten Commandments a little differently. Now you put on your gospel glasses, and you read the Ten Commandments through the lens of the gospel, and you realize that the Ten Commandments is now a pathway for you to be refined to look like Christ, right? So it's a design, it's a sign, but it's meant to refine you to look more and more like Christ. The Ten Commandments and our obedience to the Ten Commandments, listen to me very carefully, is not a path to our justification, 
but it is a path to our sanctification. And there's an important distinction between those two things. Let me just define what I mean. You will never be justified based on, on the basis of your obedience to God's law. Justified means to be made right with God. Okay? Your relationship with, with God will never be made right because you obey God's law. You can't obey God's law. And even if you could, you would do it for the wrong motivations. You would do it imperfectly. You cannot be made right with God on the basis of your obedience to his law. Okay? We are justified made right with God on the basis of our faith in Jesus and his work for us. So we're saved not by works, but by grace through faith. But now once you've experienced justification and God has saved you and made you new and he puts his Holy Spirit inside of you, then as you look at the Ten Commandments and you begin to obey the Ten Commandments, you actually realize that God uses the Ten Commandments in your life to sanctify you. That means to make you look more like Christ. It's a a means for you to be refined and molded and shaped into greater and greater Christ-likeness. And so there is something here as a Christian, it's, it's tempting to say, I'm a Christian, I don't need the Old Testament, I don't need the law, I don't need the Ten Commandments, there's nothing there for me. Actually, if you're a Christian, you read the Ten Commandments with, with the New Testament eyes, with gospel glasses, and you realize that this is actually a means to refine us to look more and more like Christ. Does that make sense to everybody? So with that in mind, we're going to dive into commandment number two. Last week, we looked at commandment number one, where God says, I'm the Lord, your God, the one who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you have no other gods besides me. And that focuses on who we are to worship. This morning, I want you to get this big idea. And that is not, that, not only that, that God gets the right to tell us who to worship, but he also has the right to tell us how to worship. Okay, that's the big idea, that God gets to tell us both who to worship and how to worship, okay? And we're going to see it right here in Exodus chapter 20. And let me read verses 4 through 6. This is commandment number 2. It's really the logical consequence of commandment number 1. If God is the only true God, and we're to have no other gods besides Him, then this is the next natural logical consequence. Commandment number 2. Look at what God's Word says. Do not make an idol for yourself. Okay, that's the command. Do not make an idol for yourself. Why? Because God's the only true God. If God is the only true God and we're to have no other gods besides him, then we shouldn't, therefore, make an idol that would sit next to him or be equal to him or in our hearts have the same place that he has. Some of you have a a translation that says, don't make a graven image for yourself or a carved image. It means don't whittle God down to something that can be held and handled and manipulated. Don't make a little idol. Don't make God into something that he's not. Don't make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them and do not serve them. Why? Look look right here in verse 5. For I, the Lord your God, he's reminding them of who he is. I, the Lord your God, I'm a... What does it say there? A jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Okay, so the, 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 the structure of this text is very straightforward. All right, anybody can follow it. God gives a command, and then he gives a reason for the command. Okay, we see the command in verses 4 and 5. And then we give a reason, God gives a reason here for why we should obey the command, and the reason is given in verses 5 and 6. 
Okay, so that's what we're going to look at this morning. The command, verses 45, 4 and 5, God says, don't make an idol for yourself. Don't, don't fashion something that looks like something in the heavens or something on the earth or something on the sea. Don't fashion for yourself a God substitute, an image, an idol, a graven carved something that you worship in place of God. That's the command. Why? <laughs> because I'm the Lord your God. I'm jealous. We're going to look at that in a moment. Let's just talk about that command. What does that mean and what doesn't it mean? Well, some in the church throughout history have said that commandment number two means essentially that we can't have any image of God uh, in our lives. So like religious artwork, they would say this is a, a restriction. The commandment number two says we're not supposed to have an image of God. And so you can't have like a depiction of Jesus in a painting, you know, at grandma's house, you see that picture of Jesus hanging on the wall. Some people would say commandment number two restricts that. I don't think that that's what it's talking about actually, actually at all, because the, the commandment is not to have any images. Notice the progression of the commandment. God says, don't make an image in order to bow to it and serve it. So what's being re restricted here is not just religious art or imagery of or paintings of Jesus, things of that nature. What's being restricted is when you make that image in order to bow down to it in worship. That's what's being restricted, okay? So don't go home, you know, and be real cagey with grandma and tell her to burn that painting of Jesus down, okay? That's not what this is talking about. This is saying don't make an idol in order to worship or serve that idol in order to bow down to that idol, okay? What is being prohibited here is simply this, right? The Israelites were tempted to make images of false gods and worship those images. They were also tempted to try to make images of the true God and worship the true God in the wrong way. So actually what's being prohibited, and listen to this very carefully, what's being prohibited in commandment number two is either worshiping the wrong God or worshiping the right God in a wrong way. Okay, those are the two things that commandment number two prohibits. We're not to worship the wrong thing, right? The wrong God and we're not to worship the right God in the wrong way. You say, well, what does that look like, <clears throat> practically speaking? Well, actually, we have a story just a few chapters later in the book of Exodus that illustrates how Israel broke this commandment in both ways, worshiping the wrong God and then worshiping the right God in the wrong way. Flip over to Exodus chapter 32. And uh, some of you probably are already going there in your minds. You're probably already thinking of this story. While God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, as in as he is giving the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, there's Moses, he's meeting with the Lord up on Mount Sinai. Does anybody remember what's happening with the Israelites back down in the camp of Israel? We read about it in Exodus 32. It has to do with a golden calf. Yep, and what you find is that they are actually breaking commandment number two while the commandment is being given. Let's look together. Exodus 32 in verse 1, it says, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, right, where he's meeting with God, they gathered around Aaron, who is the priest, and they said to him, come make images for us. Come make idols for us. Come make gods for us who will go before us. Because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron replied, 
To them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he took the gold from them, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, uh, 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 right? The, the commandment says no graven images, no carved images. Here he takes a graving tool, an engraving tool, and he fashions it into what? The image of a calf. Okay, so the God of the universe... The God who is infinite, the God who has redeemed them out of Israel, now they're going to create a wrong God, an image of a calf, and they're going to worship this wrong God. And then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So what are they doing here? They're worshiping the wrong God. But now what happens next is they, there's a little confusion that happens because in verse 5, it says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it, and he made an announcement there will be a festival to who? See it in the text? There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. So Aaron says, we're going to take this image of a wrong God and we're going to use it to celebrate the Lord, the true God. So what's happening here? Not only are they worshiping the wrong God, now they're going to worship the right God in the wrong way. And so they throw a party and they throw a festival and they participate in false worship. So Israel is breaking commandment number two as the commandment is being given by God to Moses. They are, instead of worshiping God and God alone in the way that he commands, they are creating a God substitute, something that is an image of a false God, and they begin to worship it as if they are worshiping God. So they're worshiping the wrong God, and they're using it to try to worship the true God, but in a wrong way substituting the worship of the true God for something that is less, lower than, other than the true God. Jen Wilkin has written a wonderful little book on the Ten Commandments, and she writes about the differences between this golden calf and the true God of the universe that they were called to worship. Listen to what Jen says. She says, this golden calf, it, it, is, it is small, but God is immense. It is inanimate. It's an inanimate, inanimate object, but God is Spirit, it is location-bound, but God is everywhere fully present. It is created, but God is uncreated. It is new, but God is eternal. It is impotent, but God is omnipotent. It is destructible, but God is indestructible. It is of minor value, but God is of infinite value. It is blind and deaf and mute. But God sees and hears and speaks. You see, what they were doing is they were substituting worship of the true God in a true way for something that was other than God, something that was less than God. And as soon as you realize what the Israelites were doing, it's just natural to look in the mirror and realize we do the very same things. We can substitute worship of the one true God for things that are less than God. We can elevate to the place of God things that are lower than God. We can, we can worship as an idol of the heart something that is simply false. All of us can be guilty of breaking commandment number two, of making idols in order to worship them. Now you say, Pastor, you know, I don't have any graved image, graven images in my house. Well, congratulations. I'm very glad to, to hear that. Hopefully, hopefully none of you have little carved gods in your house, right? Am I right on that? No. Okay, don't raise your hand on that one if you do. But most of us, I would say hopefully all of us, don't have little graven carved images or idols or little gods uh, tucked away in your house. However, 
all of us can break commandment number two when we worship other things as ultimate in our lives that are not actually God, or when we worship God in wrong kinds of ways. In other words, when we worship something that is false, a wrong kind of God, or when we worship the true God in a wrong way, we can do the very same thing. You say, Pastor, how do, you, how do we do that? Well, there's so many different ways that we do it, but let me just give you three ways that I think that this uh, happens very commonly in our lives uh, today. Number one, we break this command when good things become God things in our lives. Or another way to put that is when important things become ultimate things in our lives. What we're actually doing is we're elevating a created thing and treating it like it's the creator. We're worshiping as an idol something that is not God. And most of us, listen, all of us have a tendency to elevate things in our heart to a place of ultimate importance. And let's just be honest. Most of the things, even Christian people, tend to elevate to a place of ultimate importance. Most of those things are not bad things. Many of them, most of them, are good things. But when we worship a good thing as a God thing, we treat a a good thing as a God thing, or an important thing as an ultimate thing, it's become an idol thing. Okay, And we're actually breaking commandment number two because we've taken a good that God has given, treating it like a God, and that's what idolatry means. That's what it means to make an idol and bow down to it and serve it. You know, there are many important things, but there's only one ultimate thing, and that's the Lord. And he's called, we're called to put him as number one in our life. He's called to be the priority in our life uh, to to demote anything in our life that tries to take his place. But there are many good things and many important things in our lives that tend to try to climb up to that thing of first importance. And there's so many things I could talk about here. Let me just, let me just share with you some of the, you know, here's one of the good things in our life. Uh, kids' sports. We really enjoy those. It's just fun to watch our kids uh, do sports, whether it's archery or, or baseball or, uh, you know, our youngest now is playing softball, which was, we're so excited about. It's so fun. That, you know, the, the helmet is like as big as the whole rest of the body. And it's wonderful. It's so cute. Uh, but, you know, it's very tempting for that good thing to become a, an ultimate thing, that important thing to become an ultimate thing. Uh, I think if we have anything close to a carved image <laughs> in our culture, it's travel team travel ball. I mean, and we face, I'm just telling you as a pastor and his family, we face the same temptation you face. Coaches who recognize a talent and they want to travel every single week and do tournament after tournament after tournament all year long. And it's tempting because you want your kids to do well, right? And, and maybe you have felt that your kids got a talent with sports and you want them to do well and they, they're getting an opportunity on a team. But all of a sudden that good thing that important thing has become an ultimate thing, and now it's driving everything else about your life, right? So it's become ultimate in your life. It's become a God thing in your life. And all of a sudden, that's what's most important, and that's what's driving your checkbook. It's what's driving your time, your calendar. It's what's driving your priorities, and and rather than God and a relationship with God for your kids. It's easy to take your kids' academic pursuits, a good thing, an important thing, but elevate them to an ultimate thing. And when that happens, it becomes a God thing. It becomes a matter of idolatry in our life. We can do this with our careers. 
A career is a good thing. A job is a good thing. Uh, but, but when that becomes an ultimate thing, it's, it's actually an idol at that point. An idol is something other than God that becomes of ultimate worth to us or, or, or serves as an object of our greatest desire or our greatest devotion. An idol is what we love or pursue above all other things. J.I. Packer, I shared with you, said that an idol is anything that we love, seek, worship, serve, and allow to control us. And I think the real temptation for those of us in this room is not allowing bad things to do that, although that might be a temptation. It's actually allowing good things to become ultimate things in our life, important things to become God in our life rather than God. And John Calvin says that the human heart is an idol factory. What he means by that is that it's the tendency of the human heart to manufacture all sorts of things that become ultimate in our lives, that take the place of God. And so when a good thing becomes a God thing, we're breaking commandment number two. Number two, um, another way that we break this command, when we shrink God down to something smaller than he is, we are breaking commandment number two, right? That's the whole point of a carved image. You're taking the infinite God and making him something finite. You're taking the eternal God, and putting him into time and space. You're taking the God who cannot be fully imagined and making him something that you can handle, you can hold, you can control, you can manipulate. You're shrinking God down to something less than he is. That's what the Israelites did with the golden calf. They took this infinite, eternal God and shrunk him down to something very small. The reality is that we can face that temptation as well. When we think about God as something less than what he actually is. We are breaking commandment number two and we begin to worship an idol rather than the true God. You know, it's possible to even worship our ideas about God more than we even worship God. That's possible. Be very careful when you say, you know, I like to think of God like, be very careful with what comes out next. You know, I've heard people say, you know, I like to think of the Holy Spirit it's like a purple haze, you know? Well, what are, you, what are we doing there? Like, what are we doing? <laughs> We're shrinking God down to something understandable, controllable, manipulatable, something less than what he is. God is beyond what we can fully comprehend or explain, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing because if you could fully understand, comprehend, or explain God, then it must mean that he's very small. You know, one of the most healthy things you can ever say if somebody asks you a tough theological question about God, how, who he is, how, what's he like, how he works, one of the healthiest things you can ever say is, I don't know. Practice it. Try it sometime. I have to say it all the time with my kids because they ask me questions I truly don't know the answer to. You know, they, have the, they, stump, the, they stump their dad with hard theological questions all the time. And here's what I regularly, routinely tell them. I don't know. I don't fully understand that. I can't fully wrap my mind around that. And actually, that should be a comfort to us. Because if we could fully understand God and explain God, then God would have to be very small for my finite brain to be able to wrap itself around who God is. But if God is bigger than my finite brain and my imagination, then that's, that rings true. It would make sense that God is so big that my finite brain can't wrap itself around something infinite. That I can't fully explain him. I don't want to put God in a box that I can hold and manipulate and handle and control and fully explain. I have to say at some point, there is some mystery to this. 
God is understandable, but he's not fully comprehensible. We can explain God, but we can't fully explain God. At some point, we have to stand back in wonder and say, there's some mystery there. And God is so big and so great, I can't fully comprehend him. And what I'm not going to do is try to shrink him down to something less than what he is just in order to be able to understand or explain him. Does that make sense? And so A.W. Tozer said that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so we want to be really careful with our thoughts about who God is and what God is like. We, we want to be careful with our theology. We want to have precise theology. We want to have biblical theology because we want to make sure that we're not just worshiping our ideas about God, especially a false or wrong idea about God. We're actually worshiping God himself. That in worship, we're not coming and we're not like picturing God being a certain way or picturing him as something else, that we actually are trying to worship the God who reveals himself in Scripture. But there's a third and final way that we can break this command, and that is, I told you that God has the right to tell us who to worship and how to worship, right? And he, here he tells Israel, I don't want you to worship me by creating a little God substitute, a little image, and worshiping that. God is very particular about how he is to be worshiped. And one of the ways that we break commandment number two is when we worship God in a way that he has forbidden or fail to worship him in a way that he has commanded. Okay, let me say that again. We break commandment number two when we worship God in a way that he has forbidden or fail to worship him in a way that he has commanded. Let me give it just a couple of illustrations of that. If I came in on a Sunday and said, hey, guys, you know what we're going to do? We're going to bring in a big cross right here, and we're all going to bow down to it, you know, to symb symbolically express our worship. That would be worshiping God in a way that he has forbidden. In other words, not just anything is on the table when it comes to how we construct our worship time. We're not just going to do anything in this place. There are some things that we say an emphatic no to. Does that make sense? There, there's some things that if you hear a pastor say like, hey, we're going to all bow down to this cross because that seems cool and it seems worshipful, you're going to say no because commandment number two calls us not to worship God in a way that he's not commanded us to. And so we don't want to worship God in a way that he has forbidden. The other side of that is that we, if we fail to worship God in a way that he has commanded then we're breaking commandment number two. God is very clear. There's no question mark about how God has called us to worship him. We're called to focus our attention on him. We're called to pray to him. We're called to sing to him. We're called to fellowship with his people. We're called to hear from his word. So like if I came in on a Sunday and I said, hey church, you know, uh, the Bible, it's fine, but we're just going to get rid of this. And we don't really need that anymore. It's dated. It's antiquated. It's irrelevant. We're just going to have more music, and uh, maybe we'll add some fireworks or something like that, but we're just, no more Bible. Then you realize we're actually failing to worship God as he is commanded. Word of God is supposed to be central in our worship. And so if we fail to make central what God has called us to make central, we're breaking commandment number two. We're not worshiping God how he has called us to worship. It, it, how are we called to worship? We're called to focus completely on him. So, so things like dis when we're distracted by other things, when we elevate other things in our worship other than what he's called us to do, that's an example of breaking commandment number two. What, what God is calling us to do here in this commandment is to worship him and him alone in the way that he is commanded. The, the, the right God 
in the right way. Does that make sense? No God substitutes, so we don't want the wrong God. And, and we want to worship the right God in, in the right way. The way that he calls us to worship him is, listen, by directing the attention of our minds and the affections of our hearts on the proper object of our worship, which is God and God alone. He is to have the full attention of our minds and the affections of our hearts focused on him and him alone. So nothing other than God, nothing less than God, no good that becomes like God, not my ideas about God, nothing that shifts my focus away from God, nothing in the place of God. That's what commandment number two is all about. Now you say, Pastor, why? Why should we obey that command? Well, thank you so much for asking that question. Notice the reason that God gives us in verses five and six. And I just want to run through this very quickly. Verses five and six, right? Don't make these things, don't bow down to them, don't worship them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's the first thing. Bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. That's the second thing. But showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. That's the third thing. So what is God doing here? God is pointing to his very own character as a motivation for our obedience and worship. He's saying, here, here's what I, I don't want you to make a wrong God or worship me the wrong way. Why? Because of who I am. Number one, the text tells us God is jealous. His I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, this is a virtuous, righteous kind of jealousy. When you read the Ten Commandments, there's an element of patrimony and matrimony. Okay, I want you to think about this for a moment. Patrimony. This is a father speaking to his children, a father-son relationship. Idolatry is like running away from home. But there's also matrimony here. God is speaking his, to, to Israel like a husband speaks to his wife. And the idea of jealousy has the notion of like a husband's spurned love. So God is addressing Israel not just as a father to a son, but a husband to a bride and saying, I, I don't want to be turned away by you. I am jealous for your love. I am zealous for your heart. I don't want anything else taking the affections that belong to me alone and drawing your attention away. Right? So idolatry, if you think about the patrimony aspect, idolatry would be like running away from home. If you think about the matrimony element, then idolatry would be akin to spiritual adultery. And what God is saying is if, if you worship the wrong God, your heart is being drawn away from your true husband. God is saying, I, I want you to love me and to love me alone. I don't want someone else being introduced into the covenant relationship. I don't want something else coming into our relationship. And I, want, I don't want somebody, somebody else drawing you away from the relationship. I want you and you alone. I'm jealous for your love. God is jealous for his bride. He wants your affection with no, no one or nothing else being introduced into the relationship. And so he says, I'm a jealous God. Number two, not only is God jealous, God is a judge. God is a judge. 
And that ought to motivate our obedience to him. Why should we obey this command? Well, look what he says, because I bring the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. This is speaking about God's judgment on idolatry. You say, why shouldn't I make an idol? Why shouldn't I elevate something else in my life to his place? Because he'll judge it. God is very serious about our sin. Amen? We tend to minimize our sin and say it's not that big of a deal. This shows us that there are lasting consequences for our sin. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying, if you choose an idol over me, if you choose to make something else of ultimate worth and value and meaning in your life, there are consequences that will affect your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. Now you say, Pastor, does this mean that God is going to judge my children for my sin or my grandchildren for my sin? No, that's not what this means. In fact, write this down in your uh, margins as a cross-reference. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. Ezekiel 18 and verse 20 says this, a son won't suffer punishment for the father's iniquity. Okay, that's a promise of God's word in Ezekiel 18. A son won't suffer punishment for a father's iniquity. What that means is, is that you're accountable for your sin. Now, God's not going to hold you responsible for the sins of your parents or your grandparents. Okay, God's not going to judge your kids or your grandkids for your sin. But here is what is also true. The consequences of one generation's sin can be felt for generations to come. So if you choose idolatry, don't think your kids won't be affected. Don't think that won't make a lasting difference in your family tree. Think here about generational patterns of abuse or alcoholism or adultery, right? You've seen it. Some of you have experienced that. You say, granddad was an alcoholic. It affected our whole family. That's what he's talking about. There are consequences for your sin. That's what he's saying. To the third or the fourth generation. And if those generations... Subsequent generations continue in the sins of their fathers, they'll experience the very same judgment that their parents and grandparents experienced. So, so let, me, let me just tell you, if there is something, mom and dad, if there is something that has taken root in your life as ultimate that is not God, don't think it just affects you. It will affect your children and your grandchildren. If something has become an idol and taken root in your life and you have displaced the one true God for that false God, maybe it's work, maybe it's money, maybe it's impurity, maybe it's something else, that will affect your children and your grandchildren. Make no mistake about it. Let me give you the flip side of that coin. It's also true that if you prioritize the Lord, that will also make a lasting difference on your children and your grandchildren. Amen? If you, listen, if you invest spiritually, that will affect your heritage and your legacy. And hey, if you would say, look, I'm the recipient, I'm the third or fourth generation of some generational stuff, let, you, let your generation, you be the one to start new patterns. You'd be the one to, to take a stand for the Lord. You be the one to, 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 to uh, seek to obey God and, and you start a new generational pattern with your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. But, but make no mistake about it. Listen, there are consequences for our sin. That is what he's saying here. This shows us, listen, the seriousness of our worship. Who you worship and how you worship is truly a matter of life and death. Not just for you, but for the generations to come. So think seriously about that. What is ultimate in my life? Ask yourself that question. What is ultimate in my life? 
And then think about how that's going to affect your kids and your grandkids and even your great-grandkids. There are consequences for sin and idolatry. But that's not where the text ends. And that's not where I want to end this morning. There's one final thing I want you to see, and that is, so you think about God's character. He's jealous, he's a judge, but he's also, listen to me, he's also gracious. And as we think about why we ought to obey this command, I love (laughs) where this text ends in verse 6. Yes, I'll bring the consequences of one generation's sin to the third and fourth generation. But look what else, verse 6, but I will show faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. God is gracious. And let this motivate your obedience. Why shouldn't you have idols of the heart? Because God is gracious. He he shows faithful love to a thousand generations. Let me just break that down for a second. The word faithful love is the Hebrew word hesed. It means covenant loyalty. It's the closest Hebrew word that we have to the New Testament word for grace. God says, I will show my graciousness, my covenant loyalty. God's going to be loyal to the covenant even when his people are disloyal. God's going to be committed to his people even when they fail to be fully committed to him. That's God's grace. Paul puts it this way. When we are faithless, he is still faithful. That's hesed. That's covenant loyalty. God says, I'm going to show my steadfast love, my covenant love, my, my faithful love. Notice how far his grace extends. I'm going to show it for a thousand generations. Think about the contrast here. If you have elevated an idol in your life, there are going to be consequences, real consequences to the third and the fourth generation. But the the contrast is God's grace extends to a thousand generations. No matter how bad our sin is, God's grace is so much better. No matter how deep our brokenness, God's grace goes even deeper. I love the way my friend Matt Boswell puts this in his song. He says, our sins, they are many, but God's mercy is more. However great our sin, God's grace is greater. God says, my love will endure for a thousand generations. That's a shorthand way of saying my grace is going to last forever. When God uses the word thousand in the Bible, it's always, it's always hyper, hyperbole. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. You know what that means? I own all the hills. My faithfulness endures for a thousand generations. That's what that means is my faithfulness endures forever. My grace to you will be unending. I love the way Dane Ortland puts it in his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly. Just let this bless you today. Dane says, God's determined commitment to us which is another way of saying his hesed. God's determined commitment to us never runs dry. Keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations does not mean that his goodness shuts off with generation 1001. It is God's own way of saying, there is no termination date on my commitment to you. Can I get a witness up in here? Aren't you thankful for that? There is no termination date on my commitment to you. You can't get rid of my grace to you. You can't outrun my mercy. You can't evade my goodness. My heart is set on you. God's goodness will be passed down in a way that inexorably swallows up all our sins. You say, why would I be motivated to worship the right God in the right way? This is why, His grace. What 
What other God is like this? What other image can, be, can do this? What idol can love you like this? Let the love and the grace of God motivate your obedience today. God extends his grace to us, which is far greater than our sin, lasting a thousand generations forever. We know that scripture tells us he extends his grace by sending his own son, who is the image of the invisible God. Think about that. Don't worship an image. Worship Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God. And, and the image of the invisible God, Jesus, took our iniquity, our lawlessness on himself on the cross. He paid the penalty for our lawlessness. And he rose from the dead and now offers new life to us, us who were created in the image of God. Genesis 1. And yet we have defaced the image through our sin. And so God loves us so much. He sends the image of the invisible God, his son Jesus, who comes and forgives and makes us new so that we can, Romans 8, be conformed into the image of his son. Throw away false images. Realize that God created you in his image. Yes, we defaced that image through our sin, but God loves us so much he sent the image of himself in the person of his son, Jesus to come so that the, the image in us can be renewed and restored. We can be conformed to the image of God's Son. Folks, that is His grace. Amen? Would you bow with me? If you're here today and you have never received the gift of the grace of God, I invite you to do that. At the end of this service, I'll be out in the lobby with a number of other pastors and ministers. And if you're here today and say, I need the grace of God, I need the love of God in my life, like what you're talking about. You come and see us after the service, and we'll talk with you about how you can know Jesus in that way. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, allow the Ten Commandments, commandment number two, allow that to refine you today. If there's something that's become an, an, an idol in your life, allow this word to refine you to look more like Christ. Lord, we need your spirit for this. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you to do your work on our hearts. Do reconstructive surgery on our hearts. Take out what is false and wrong, disobedient and rebellious and broken. Renew us. Make us like Jesus. We pray in his name.